take your Bibles, Exodus chapter 34, and let me ask you, uh, is there somebody in your life that you have had to put up with, and I mean put up with, for years? Don't look at your spouse. I, I don't want to have to do weeks of, of marital counseling because of this sermon, but is there somebody like that, that I mean, and I mean put up with? Uh, maybe they are unruly or stupid or disobedient, unstable, perverse, ungrateful. Don't look at your spouse. Don't look to the right or to the left. Honey, you have to quit looking at me for just a minute uh, so nobody thinks you're, you're, you're considering me. Somebody you stayed with no matter what. Don't, don't look at your spouse. We all have people like that in our lives, and maybe, maybe it is someone we're close to. Uh, family or, or friends or something like that. If there's someone like that in your life that you just, you just have to put up with despite all of their unruliness or stupidity or, or disobedience or lack of stability, their perverseness, their fa the fact that they're ingrates, well then, welcome to God's world for the last one, two, three, forever. Because that's what God has been doing with his people since he had a people, is putting up with, well, unruliness and stupidity, disobedience, etc., etc., etc. So this morning, we're going to look at God's character. We're going to look at those aspects of God that keep him hanging around for his people, regardless of those traits that, that they very often... Uh, show, uh, live by, live with. Exodus 34, verses th 6 through 7, give us the picture of, of God's enduring character, that character that he has that keeps us around. Read with me. Then the Lord passed in front of him, him being Abraham, or rather Moses, Moses, not Abraham, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, let's get a little context into this pronouncement by God. This is immediately following the golden calf incident. I don't know if that's what they referred to it as uh, in the years following. That's what we're going to call it this morning. The golden calf incident. Sounds like it ought to be on CSI or something, right? You remember the golden calf incident? Moses is up on the mountain for the, the first time. This is the second time Moses is up on the mountain. He's up on the mountain for the first time. He gets the Ten Commandments carved into tablets of stone by the very finger of God. And he was gone just a little too long for the people down at the base of the mountain. And they just kind of gave up hope on Moses. Well, he's dead or something. Aaron, hey, Aaron, could you give us uh, a god, uh, uh, make us a, a, an idol to worship? Now, let's, let's give them a little credit. They don't deserve much, but give them a little bit of credit. They weren't just looking for some gold figurine to worship. They felt that the, the gods rode on these idols, and the best thing to do, the, the, the gods in the area sat kind of like they had the Ark of the Covenant or 
uh, would before too long. God sat, his presence sat on the covenant. They, the ark, uh, the, the gods, the, the, uh, the folks in the area felt like the gods rested on these, these animals that they had, had carved, fashioned. So they thought they were helping them out. Let's, let's give the people, the leaders probably thought, a representation, something to look at. We've lost Moses. He was kind of our representation of God. He, he was our, our mediator. He was the, the uh, ambassador. Let's, let's give him something else to look at. And uh, Okay, Aaron said, bring me all your gold, and, and uh, we'll make a calf. And they did, and as turns out that that was the day Moses came down the mountain, and what's all this noise? It sounds like a battle, uh, Joshua says to him, and uh, Moses says, that's, that's no battle, that's, that's people who've gone, gone astray. That's, that's rejoicing, that's singing, that's dancing. He gets down there, sees what they've done. He, in anger, throws the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone down, shatters them. Uh, he makes the, the people drink the ground-up idol. And we could talk about that and, and why and we're not going to, but that was kind of the punishment. Thousands died that day as punishment. The best excuse in all of the Bible for doing something you're not supposed to do was given by Aaron. Moses says, Aaron, what in the world? What were you doing? What were you thinking? Why did you do this? And Aaron said, look, it was the people. They brought me this gold. I threw it in the fire, and out came a calf. I mean, he said that, a grown man. I could understand a four-year-old saying this, but Aaron, best excuse in the Bible. Moses didn't even respond. He's like, he, I, I, you should see him face-palming, shaking his head, walking away. That's the incident that happens. That's, that's what preceded God saying these things about himself. Moses is now up on the mountain again, the second time. This time he goes up and he's got to chisel the... the uh, the Ten Commandments in the stone. God doesn't write them with his own hand this time. I think there's something symbolic there we could talk about, but we'll uh, save that for another day. This, this speech of God's here is a renewal of the covenant that Israel had just annihilated. I mean, they didn't, they, they didn't just kind of mess up a little bit. They replaced God that just a few months ago had brought them out of Egypt. They had completely trashed that covenant. And God, in response, I mean, he does say to Moses, hey, let me uh, tell you what, Moses, this means you make a deal. I'm going to wipe everybody out. I'm going to start over with you. Okay, we'll take your family. We'll, we'll, we'll make a new Israel out of them. And, and uh, Moses protests and says, Lord, if, it, if it's not them, it's not me either. And and. I, I firmly believe what we have here is God testing Moses' heart for his people, that he was called to lead by God. Are you willing to give up? You know, I, I, I can make you great, Moses. Yeah, no, I'm good. Save these people. So what we see here is God keeping his side of the covenant. We see his character enduring. And Israel really needed to hear this from God right now. They needed to hear how his character endured. They, they needed to hear these healing attributes of God because they knew what they had done. I mean, family and friends have now fallen into this crack uh, and that opens up in the earth. They're, 
they've got some, some things to work out, and God stands before Moses and says these things about himself. Things that not just Israel needed to hear, but I think today we need to hear. Because I know personally, usually daily, I annihilate the covenants that God has made with me. I am not what I'm supposed to be every day. I have not fulfilled my end of what I'm supposed to be as a called out Christian messenger, evangelist. By the way, I'm not talking about as a pastor, I'm talking about just as a Christian, the same thing y'all are. I don't fulfill what I'm supposed to do. I get rid of that covenant, I throw it out, and God in turn says to me these things. He describes his character. He says, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, he repeats his own name. Just so they know, you know what? Hey, I'm talking about me and, and Yahweh, I am what I am. I am what I will be. That's kind of how it translates. It's, it's an, odd, an odd verb to, to translate, especially to be a proper name. But he says that not only am I what I am, I will be what I will be. I will always be these things. He says, first, I am compassionate. God is telling us that he genuinely cares about humans. We learned Wednesday night about a word for prayer in the Old Testament called atar, which is beseeching, pleading, begging. And, and every time that word is used in the Old Testament for prayer, it is in a situation where God shows extreme compassion, showing that he extremely, genuinely cares about humans. And not just his people, not just the, the, the insiders, not just the ones who follow him, but in one case we looked at Manasseh, one of the most evil kings that ever ruled, who pleaded with God and God genuinely cared. He had compassion on him and it turned Manasseh's life around for the rest of his days. We're, we're reading on Sunday night, studying about Jonah and his mission trip to Nineveh. And how God genuinely compare, uh, genu had genuine compassion for the Ninevites. And if, if you've missed that, uh, go back and listen to them and catch up with how evil and despicable the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were. And yet God had compassion on them. It is tender parental concern that God has. That's what we see in this word compassionate. Even after the golden calf, God, even after we did what we, yeah. Yeah, because what parent doesn't want to bring that child back from disobedience, back from wandering, back from the pain of floundering in idolatry, which idolatry is just any time we put something before God, right? So, what parent doesn't want to see that from his child? We see in this word compassionate, we see mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That's mercy. If you want a good definition of mercy, not getting what we deserve. That is the compassionate God. God tells Moses, let me wipe them out. That would have been fine. It would have been God's right to do that. And yet he had mercy. That is a compassionate God. We also see that God describes himself as gracious. 
God is not just compassionate, not just merciful, but He is gracious. Gracious means that we don't get what is deserved. Or uh, we, we, He does, I think I left a word out there and I can't figure out which word, uh, does get, does what isn't deserved. Oh, that is right. I, I, I do have the verb up there. He does what isn't deserved. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. God does both in our lives. Now, God is not only going to not wipe out Israel for their stupidity, their unruliness, their disobedience, but He is going to continue to bless them and eventually give them the promised land anyway, because really that was the covenant. That was a main part of the covenant. The coming Messiah was the big deal. He was going to use Israel to bring the Messiah for, the, for all the nations. But immediately, or at least in the next 40 years, they would get the promised land. He was still going to give them that blessing because he was gracious. God goes beyond the expected for his people. There are certain things that we should get that, that we don't. There are certain things that we do get that we shouldn't. And then there are just those times where we wonder what in the world God was thinking in letting us have what he gave us. Etta and I have talked about this week, and I was telling Donald earlier in the week, that some days I really think uh, Alan Funt is going to jump out from the office and say, Ha, we got you. You, you thought this was where you are going to be. No, no, no. Go back to Nixon. Or, in, for you younger ones, I was going to get pumped. I've mean, I got to talk to both generations here. Uh, you know, just somebody was going to say, no, no, what you see is a blessing right now. You're, you're calling to sulfur. No, 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 no. It, 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 you know, it's, it is beyond what I could imagine God calling me here. He is gracious. He's gone beyond what was expected. So he says, I'm compassionate. I'm a gracious God. I am slow to anger. Now, we read the Old Testament and we go, really, God? Because I'm looking at how you, you know, you, you did some things. I mean, you wiped some people out, Sodom, Gomorrah, uh, the crack here that swallowed up however many thousands, slow to anger. And, and then I, I, I hear from, you know, somewhere back here, how long did I wait to do those things? How long did I wait to, to show my anger. How many times did I give a warning and say, look y'all, this is the result of what you're doing if you keep down this path. How many times did I try to bring them back, especially as we look over Israel's history? How many times did he try to steer them away from what they were doing? Yes, God is slow to anger. God is slow to anger even in the moral realm. God is slow with our failings, slow to anger. And I don't, I don't think that because I, I put a lot of pressure on myself when I fail morally. Like, oh, God, you've got to be just, I mean, ready to wring my neck, got the lightning bolt, just, just ready to go. When in fact, I read that God is slow to anger. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to leave me where I am. That doesn't mean he's happy with my, my failing, it doesn't mean that he's okay with whatever I do because he's slow to anger and oh, I'm alright, I'm chill about it. No, that's not the God we serve, but it is a God who is patient, slow to anger, 
not just looking to zap us every time we get something wrong. I, I like that about him. I'd have been fried a long time ago if that were not the case with God. I think some of y'all look kind of toasty this morning too if, uh, if this weren't the way God worked. He's slow to anger, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, rich in faithful love. This love here is that, that Old Testament term that is a little difficult for us to translate. I talked about it a little bit last week, that term chesed. Sometimes we translate it loving kindness because we just we can't quite wrap our head around all that it means, and that's, that's the nature of the Hebrew language in general anyway. But this is long-term, reliable loyalty. It's not just love. It's not just uh, uh, an emotional feeling that God has toward his people. It is loyalty that he has toward his people. It is this, uh, this faithfulness to his promises even when we aren't faithful to our promises. That's love, right? Love that sticks around when, when that love isn't returned the way, A, it's supposed to be, and B, the way we promised it would be. That's love. That is the kind of love. That is faithful love, chesed, that we see here in the Old Testament. This ensures the success of his church, of his people. It ensures covenantal success. Why? Because if the covenant depends on me, and the covenant depends on you, the covenant is going to fail. But because God has faithful love, has reliable, long-term loyalty, the covenant succeeds. The covenant goes on. A church or Israel can struggle and stumble for hundreds of years, and God can finally say, you have earned your captivity, and he can send the northern kingdom, not even really send in the northern kingdom into uh, captivity. They were just disbanded, uh, mixed in in the northern kingdom. That's where we get Samaritans, uh, the idea of Samaritans. They, they were the result of... Uh, Assyria coming in and, and not taking a group off, but obliterating the northern kingdom so that, that you didn't even see a group. You saw a handful here and two there and four or five over yonder. The southern kingdom, they were taken off into Babylon, into captivity, and uh, a group remained. But all of that was God saying, I have suffered with you enough. You've had enough opportunity to return to me and you have not. Therefore, now is the time of your discipline. But even in the midst of that, I will be faithful. How many churches do we know that have suffered the same fate over years? Discipline after discipline after discipline from the Lord. Oftentimes, churches call it bad preachers. Or this person died. Or uh, we just didn't have the resources we need. Or we come up with some other excuse when in fact, could it not have been the discipline of the Lord saying, come back to me. And that church still exists. That church is still around because God's covenantal promise that he will maintain his church. 
And maybe this branch and that branch and the other branch of his church are gone, but his church, his people are still around and will still continue to move forward. Rich in faithful love and truth, he says. Rich in truth. He is correct. God is correct in everything he says. God is correct in everything he does. God is trustworthy in everything he says and does. So when he says, thousands of you will die right now when I crack open the earth, that was a correct result. That was a, 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 a trustworthy result. There was truth in that. God wasn't being dishonest in any way. He wasn't lying in any way. He wasn't cheating them in any way. He was doing exactly what God would do. But also, when he says, I'm rich in faithful love, I'm compassionate, I'm slow to anger, we can count on that to be true as well. When God tells us that we are to be certain things and do certain things and avoid certain areas in our lives or we are to, are to give up certain things for Him and only focus on certain areas in our lives for Him, we can know that His decisions about those things are right. Because God is faithful, rich in faithful truth or rich in truth. So when I'm told to do something, when it is clear in my life that I need to adjust one way or the other, great, y'all, great Sunday school lesson this morning, and I don't ever get to finish them. Uh, they usually talk about great stuff after I leave, too. But uh, we, we got to hear this morning, it's one thing to memorize Scripture. It's another thing to do Scripture. Francis Chan gave a great example, and I'm so April, thanks for playing that this morning. I got to use an illustration in my sermon. Uh, Francis Tran gave a great illustration of when he tells his teenage daughter to go clean her room, she doesn't come back two hours later and say, I memorized your command to clean my room. Go clean your room. I'm going to invite my friends over, and we're going to have a study, and we're going to talk about what you meant by go clean my room. And yet the room's still messy because she did not go and do. When God tells us to go and do, we know his decisions are right in our lives. When he tells us to avoid, when he tells us to move away from, when he tells us to go closer to, we know that God is doing this because he is rich in truth, because he is keeping that covenant with us to be our God so that we can be his people. We can trust that from him. He says, I'm not only rich in truth, I'm not only uh, rich in love, I maintain faithful love to a thousand generations. So now he's telling them, not only am I faithful in love, but I will always be faithful in love. That's why he gave his name twice at the beginning. I, I am what I am. I will be what I will be. Y'all, this is forever. Faithful to thousands of generations. He is committed to his people. Folks, he will not leave us. Nor will he leave us alone. See, we, we oftentimes, correct me if I'm wrong, we, we oftentimes want, don't want him to leave us but if you could just leave us alone, right? Stick around. Be here if I need you. But, I mean, could you just hush about the loving my neighbor thing? Could you just lay off the telling other people about Jesus? Just, God, if you could just 
give me what I want, not what I need. I, I know nobody here has done that, but, but we, we see that God is going to be faithful to his covenant, his call, his purpose, regardless of whether we are or not. Interesting here, faithful to thousands of generations. You know how many generations it's been? Don't put it on the screen yet. Oh, you already did. Never mind. 80, good, good math, Donald. 85 generations since Moses. Now, that's, that's if we say uh, 40, generation, 40 years in a generation, which is kind of the biblical number for a generation. But if we said 20, kind of when you might start having kids, though today that's gotten later uh, in this day and time, it, if we say 20, well, it doubles that, 170. Only 170 generations since Moses. That should blow your minds just a little bit. We're only that far from Moses? I like the 85 number, though, the 40 years in a generation. That just, that just really is crazy. We're only 85 40-year-olds from Moses. Do the numbers if you want to. 3,400 years divided by 40 is 85. And then, but God says how many generations? 86? 87? Nope. Thousands. So this is an eternal number. This is God saying, I will always, always be true to my people. It doesn't matter what happens in this generation or the next or the next. It doesn't matter how bleak it gets for my people. I will always be faithful to my people. If my people run out on me, I will chase them. If the government turns on my people, I will be with them. But I will always be with my people down to the thousands of generations. And he can do that, why? Because he is forgiving. That's the next way he describes himself. This is his nature to forgive. He does not forgive reluctantly. We, we kind of get that idea sometimes. God forgives me because he, he said he would. I mean, it, 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 it's in the covenant, right? It's in, it's in the, the contract. God, you have to forgive me. And he's going, man, I did sign that, didn't I? Dead gummit. Yeah, all right, you're forgiven. This, nope, next time too. Oh, shoot. That's not the way he works. It is his nature to forgive. He wants to forgive us. He wants to save people. He wants to see people come to him, be a part of his family, be a part of his church, be a part of his people, be adopted by him. That is his nature. And that's, he says, God says here, what he forgives. So his nature is to forgive. Now these three words we're going to go through, they really, they are very slightly nuanced. We can come up with some, okay, it probably means this and, and this. And, uh, but in reality, the three are just all-encompassing. And that's why we come up with the nuances a little bit to, as we study them. So the first thing he says is he forgives wrongdoing. Now remember, he's forgiving this to the thousands of generations. Wrongdoing. This would be conscious twisting of his words if we had to define this word narrowly. He forgives wrongdoing. He forgives uh, rebellion. This is breaking with or, or robbing God. This is breaches of his trust. I'm going to give you this. 
great, I'm going to take that and more. Sin, this is missing the mark or, or, of his good goals in our lives. So do you hear what he forgives? He forgives when we take what he said and we manipulate it to suit our own purposes. We justify what we're doing and say, well, God really didn't mean that. He forgives that. He forgives this, this rebellion. We know what rebellion is. You're the leader, but I don't care anymore. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to break with you. I'm going to take what was yours and make it mine because I want it. Sin, missing this mark. They're probably the most famous word for sin that, that we know. There's a, there's a goal that God has for us, and we miss that mark. I submit we miss it intentionally. It's not an accident. So we see here in these three words the, the totality of sin and disloyalty. Everything we can imagine to do against God, God forgives. Not because he has to, but because it is who he is. It is God's nature to forgive. That's why one of the verses that, we, that, that I use when I present the gospel is, verse, uh, is Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Because it is his nature to forgive. He wants everyone to be saved. That is God's character. But then he follows it up. Uh, one of the books I read on this said, wouldn't it have been nice if God had just stopped right there? And as a matter of fact, this passage, uh, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, is quoted at least eight times through other parts of the Testament. Various prophets quote it. Most of the time, they leave out this part. So, you know, they kind of agree, but we can't leave it out because it is also a part of God's character to be punishing. He says, I, I forgive to the thousands, uh, I'm faithful to the thousands, I forgive wrongdoing, but he, but God, will not leave the guilty unpunished. There are significant consequences for sin, for covenant unfaithfulness. God will punish those things. Now, this is not saying that because I sin, my children will be punished for it, and my grandchildren will be punished for my sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible says just the opposite, that my sin is my sin, and their sin is their sin, and they will not be punished directly for my sin. But what it does mean is that passed on sin leads to passed on judgment. If I bring things into my family that shouldn't be there, I'm teaching my kids to do it. And then they will be punished for that sin. Nobody is going to get three generations down the road and say, wait, God punished our family for that sin back then. Everything's okay now. I can do it. No, no. You will be punished for your own sin. Sin is, a, is, is punished as long as it occurs. But look at the numbers God uses. I will be faithful in my love and, and my, my truth and, and in my forgiveness to thousands of generations. I will punish to the third and fourth. See, God knows that, that if his people will take the punishment, take the discipline, and return to him, that he won't need more than three or four generations to redirect, to call them back. So we're always hearing that we're only two generations from the faith. I, I agree with that. 
only two generations from losing the faith. I agree. But I also say we're only three or four generations from getting it back. There's hope. There's promise. No, we don't say, oh, everything's good then. We don't have to worry about it. No, because some generation is going to have to turn back to God, respond to that forgiveness and say, I will not raise my children the way I was raised. Y'all, we have to break generational curses every generation. Whether it's spiritual or I've seen it in places I've lived where uh, a phrase was used like living in a bucket of crabs. Every time someone started to pull their way out of their situation, somebody reached up and yanked them back down in it. Somebody has to break the generational curse. It is the same in the Christian walk. It's the same in the church. If a church is going to change, if a church is going to be the church God called them to be, if a church is going to live called out, then it has to be this generation right now that says no more are we going to be inward focused but we are going to be outward focused no more is it about me but it is about the people out there who don't know the gospel that's what happens or what has to happen in order for God to show up and say I am going to use this church so who who is going to be the one to say no longer no more I will not be the third or the fourth generation we will change it this generation that's what God's calling us to do. Y'all, this is, this is a message of grace, a message of forgiveness, a message of justice to his people, to us. It is what they needed to hear immediately following their rebellion, but it's what we also need to hear immediately prior to our rebellion. It's what we need to hear when we were between rebellions, when God is saying, who are you going to follow? Whose church are you? Whose church are you going to be? This message, this passage, guarantees the existence of his people. He will not let us go. First sulfur may die. First Baptist Church of Sulfur may cease to exist in a few years or in a lot of years. But his church will never die. This entity may go by the wayside, and I guarantee you, if it does, it is not God's fault, but the people's fault. But if it does, his church will go on. His church will not stop. And let me make this final point. The success of God's people, the church, does not depend on the people, the church. It depends on God. Now, I'm not sending you mixed messages. Oh, we have to do something, now we don't have to do something? No, I'm telling you, you do have to do something, but the something you have to do is what God tells you to do. When God calls, when God forgives, when God restores, then that is your opportunity to get back on track with Him and to say, what do you want us to do? And I, I, I can't leave this morning without reminding you that the Messiah is the author of this covenant and He is the guarantor of this covenant. It's all about Jesus. For, for the people in Exodus, on the mountain, getting the law the second time, it was all about Jesus. For us today, it is all about Jesus. You're never too sinful for Jesus to save. You are uh, never too sinful for him to keep. He can bring you out of whatever to salvation. He can sustain you 
through whatever. He doesn't leave you. You're not too undone because he keeps his promises. And he wants to forgive another generation, 86th generation today. That same God is looking for this generation to say, Lord, we trust you. Lord, we want to be your people. We want to follow you. When you come in to our church, I hope what you see is some people that just have it all together. I mean, they just, they, they are superstar Christians. I, I, I look for them, too, because I, I want to get to know them. And there are those. I'm not, I'm not being silly here. And I, every church has to have them. But what I want you to see also when you come to church is people who don't quite have it so together, and they're struggling, and they're, they're, they're looking I need to get this right in my life. I need to do that. It's usually a couple of sins, right? But I, I want you to see people who have nothing, nothing together. I mean, they've got Jesus, and that is it. They've got nothing else in their lives that we would call together, especially spiritually, and they are looking. They are hurting. And I want you to see people who come to this church, that they're here because, well, southern people go to church. And there's no Jesus in their hearts. But they just come to church because they're supposed to. And then you have people that it ain't even about the South. It's, it's about the spouse. I'm not going to do anything. I don't like any of it, but I'm here. And then you have people that are, they don't know a thing about it. They, 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 they just came in today because they were hurting and somebody said church makes you feel good. And, and I pray it does. I want all of that here. Why? Because God wants all of those here. Because Jesus has something for every one of those people. This morning, I want to speak specifically to you. If you don't know Jesus, you can. You can have a relationship because God is faithful and we see it in the cross. See, we have sinned. We fall short of God's glory. We miss the mark. We have wrongdoing. We rebel, whatever word you want to use. We do all those things. And because of those things, we deserve to die. Right? God is truth. Right? We just read that. So his decision is correct. His decision is that the wages of sin is death. So that's what we deserve. We have no argument. We have no leg to stand on. That is who we, sh we are, sinners. That is what we deserve as sinners. But, Romans 6, 23, God provided a gift through Jesus Christ. And that gift was eternal life. Forgiveness for those sins. Your life is screwed up right now? Come to Jesus. You're a southern churchgoer? Come to Jesus. You got it all together, Christian? Come to Jesus. See, he's got something for each and every one of us. And he proved it, Romans 5, 8. God proved his love toward us, his never-ending, his faithful love to thousands of generations of which we are the 85th, 6th, 7th, depending on our age, by sending his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. He saved us, provide the means, provided the means for salvation when we were his enemies. 
That's love. Romans 10, 13, anybody in here, anybody hearing this message today may respond to the gospel. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, that's it. That's how you experience salvation. It's a recognition that I'm a sinner. It's turning from that sin, turning to Christ and trusting him for that salvation, believing these things. And he'll save you. That is God's faithfulness to you. That is God's faithfulness to his word. That is God's compassion to every person on earth. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you are true to your character, that your character has endured. You have not changed. You love us. You love us back. You keep us. And Lord, anyone who calls on your name can be saved. God, I pray that you would work in this place this morning, that you would do a mighty work among those who, for whatever reason, have not trusted you as Savior. They've been putting it off. They think they're okay because their name is on a roll. Who knows what's going on? doesn't matter to me. It does matter to you. And I pray that you would draw them to you this morning, that you would do an incredible work in their hearts, Lord, that some soul would be saved today. Then there are other things you need to work on in our lives. Maybe it's a Christian who needs to understand your enduring character, that yes, I have failed time and time and again, but you, God, are slow to anger. You are quick to forgive. You are faithful to us when we are unfaithful to you. God, thank you for that promise. Lord, you know every heart in here. You know what needs to be done. And I pray that no heart goes away unchanged. God, that we respond to you this morning to the message we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen.